The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. Broadly stated, two of the major purposes of our gathering as a body of Christ is first to encourage those who would come among us who don't know Jesus, that they ought come to faith in Christ and then for those of us who, who do know Jesus, the gospel is a source of ongoing encouragement and the gathering of the body of Christ should encourage us to walk all the more faithfully to Jesus. <laughs> I can't recall a time when I felt more like an afterthought than I do this morning for a worship service that has already accomplished those purposes. However, since I brought my Bible and we're here anyway. If you have your Bible or your software, or however you get there, get there to the last chunk of John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is a strategic chapter forming as it does the bridge between the first major section of the Gospel of John, chapters one through 11, that is largely organized around these seven signpost miracles. The next major section of the Gospel of John is the section that is, that is the narrative and teaching of Jesus during his last night before the cross. The Thursday night teachings of Jesus encompass all of John 13 through 17 and a little bit into 18. We're going to be in that last night for a while. Chapter 12 is sort of the bridge between those two things. And chapter 12 begins right about the time of the triumphal entry, that last week, and, and John, rather than seeking to lay out the chronology of the Passion Week, as the other Gospels do, instead has chosen moments from within that week. The moment John has chosen this morning to build thematically around is the moment of the end of Jesus' public ministry. Thus, my, my title this morning is For a Little While Longer. And we'll be picking up in verse 35 and going to the end of the chapter. And I'm not going to read the whole thing at one flying leap. We'll work our way through it as we go. The crowd has just made it clear to Jesus in verse 34 that they're pretty well done with the Messiah if Jesus the Savior, if Jesus the Messiah is not going to deliver on what they believe to be the most important agenda items, in their case, the use of Jesus' evident, extraordinary supernatural abilities to overthrow the Roman government. In their case, it was very specifically, if Jesus won't fix the politics of my time and my place, what sort of savior is that? We could define it, we could define it just that narrowly, but we can also think of it more broadly in our time. If Jesus is not the savior I would design, 
then he's not the savior I want. Of course, the fallacy in that is our greatest need is the fact that we're going to stand before God one day having, having come on our own to have an enormous sin debt. Our lives have been lived as citizens of a world at war with God and our capacity for willful ongoing sin is formidable. And one day when we stand before God, he in his absolute justice will judge us. And the only means to safety in that judgment is by receiving his gift of grace through faith and believing in his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Because on the cross he died for sinners and then he didn't stay dead but just a scant few days later rose from the grave to declare that and prove and underscore that everything he had taught, everything he had said was true. That he ascended into heaven and one day is coming again our great king. And the gospel is available for all who will turn from their sin and accept the savior that they need by faith. And whether or not he saves you from all the irksome circumstances of your life, candidly, odds are he won't. The Ford of Power and Light is not going to start giving you electricity because you suddenly got saved. The power bill is still coming next month. And so many other things, but all that matters eternally has been resolved by Christ on the cross. Well, they sort of wrap up their willful rejection of him and he responds, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. I've entitled my message this morning, A Little While Longer. For a little while longer, and I'm quoting Jesus in verse 35 when he says, Roman numeral one on your outline, one last invitation. So Jesus said to them, since they have now rejected him, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Letter A on your outline, the moment is nearly gone. The moment is nearly gone. The light's among you for a little while longer. The moment is nearly gone. You know, you stand every moment of your life on the watershed, the continental divide of history and destiny. The moment you walked into this service this morning is long gone, it's history. And from this moment forward looms your destiny. This moment is flashing by very, very quickly. And once gone, it's gone. We, when, we speak of, when we speak of spending, when we use the verb spend in a sentence, we almost always mean one 
of two things. There are only two things in common conversational usage anyway. There are only two things you and I spend. Let's not be rhetorical. Let's just kind of go to class this morning. What, what's one of the two things that we spend? I got them both because the law of averages kicked in. You're right. When we talk about spending, we're talking about either money or time. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's easy, but one of those two things, if you absolutely have to, you can usually come up with more. Which one of those two things can you come up with more of if you absolutely have to? Money. If you, if you find you need more money, I'm, you know, I'm, pick up another shift or sell something that's sitting around at your house or something. There's not one thing you can do to come up with more time. There's nothing you can do to come up with more time. And so the intentionality with which we spend time should be far more than even the budgeting and intentionality with which we spend money, although that certainly is important too. This moment is nearly gone. This moment, this open door, this challenge to repent, this opportunity to make it right with God by his grace responded to in faith because this moment, this moment is nearly gone. And perhaps you're confident that you will have other moments. Perhaps you, you see that I will cuddle my love for my sin for just a bit, but then I'll be done and then I'll come to Jesus. My prayer for you is that this morning, this passage and the truth of God's word will sober you up out of that. Let her be, the darkness is closing in. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. Just in practical terms. I am, um, when I take off my glasses, I don't see well, no matter how much light there is. My, my eyes decided to go pretty bad starting when I was in third grade and they haven't had a good day since. And I'm so glad for modern materials and good ophthalmologists and stuff. I uh, don't do well without my glasses. Well, I don't sleep in my glasses, obviously. And in our, our room at night, my wife is very, very sensitive to light. I don't mind a little nightlight. I uh, sometimes have to get up in the middle of the, bath, middle of the night and go to the bathroom, for example. And, but Gail, Gail likes it pitch, pitch, dark. Gail will tell you that the LEDs from our burglar alarm panel are too bright. Well, because I like a little bit of nightlight and Gail likes it absolutely pitch dark for sleeping, guess how our room is when we're sleeping? I ain't done. I mean, like a little nightlight, but I'm not stupid. Our room is very, very dark. Now, let me see. I'm already vision impaired because I ain't wearing my glasses. It's pitch dark. And oh, yes, I have dogs and their favorite toys. They have, of course, the run of the house. And their favorite toys are these sharp-edged little chewy bones. 
Yeah, it's a minefield. And while before I, before I go to bed, I tend to minesweep the area between my side of the bed and the bathroom door, I'm up against Gibson and Fender, and they have great night vision and are endlessly innovative. And the bones find their way back. My point, it's a silly illustration. When you're walking around in the dark, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. If you're outside of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is the light of the world, see, there's, 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 there's one set of dangers as the darkness closes in. There are the dangers of, of, of failed dreams and broken relationships, character collapses that cost you far more than you could ever imagine they would. But you know what's more dangerous than failure? Distracting, meaningless success. Suppose you go on from this moment of destiny forward to live in the darkness outside of Christ. And suppose everything goes quite well. Your career or business takes off. Your relationships are happy. Everything is seemingly at peace in your little world. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 16, 26 when he said, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? See, the funny thing about this darkness is it pretends to be light and you don't know what you're gonna step on because the darkness is closing in and let her see the light is here right now but won't always be. You have this moment. You're gonna start living for Jesus. It, it needs to be now, Christian. If you've got areas in your life where you know you're living in disobedience and somehow one more time you missed January 1st and the whole New Year's resolution thing unraveled more than two months ago and here you are. And you know you need to make a change one day. You have today. You have today. I guess specifically, you have this morning. Who knows whether or not you have this afternoon. Unbeliever outside of Christ, you're here. You're not unreasonable. You've understood the truth about Jesus in your head. You just, you just got a, you got a plan to kind of do your own thing for a while and you're gonna, you're gonna follow Jesus later. There are two real problems with that. The first real problem is, of course, you're not guaranteed there will be a later for you on earth. Second, you're not guaranteed the future capacity to repent. Now, that's heavy, but it's true, and John's about to explain it. You see, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, that, meaning that faith, is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Here, Jesus issues this last invitation, and then he goes and hides himself. I didn't make that up. That's there. 
He'll do the same thing to you, or at least he will be within his rights. And you may come to that planned future date and find on that planned future date, you lack the capacity to repent. And having practiced not repenting, you've gotten good at it. He is not obligated to save you on your timetable. That is a massively presumptive and dangerous thing on your part today. If you hear his voice, harden not your heart. If there is in you the slightest inclination to respond to him in repentance and faith, fan that flame. Come to Jesus, strong and kind. Why unbelief? Here are these, these, these Jewish leaders and others in the crowd. They've seen the things he's done. They've heard the things he said. They have firsthand certain knowledge of who he is and what he can do, and yet persist in not following him. It begs the question, why? Which, Roman 2 on your outline, two overlapping explanations why unbelief? Why against the, the unmistakable reality of, of encountering Jesus as he is? Why unbelief? Verses 37 through 43. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He quotes Isaiah 53, 1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, verse 10, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Two overlapping explanations for their unbelief. Letter A, the first is their prophesied incapacity. Their prophesied incapacity. We love our sin, you and I. We are born not only with a sin nature, but a love of that sin nature, that selfishness, that autonomy, that personal in-chargeness. And we are repulsed by the idea of the light. This is condemnation, Jesus said in John 3, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And all God has to do in order that you go to hell forever is nothing. And your natural sin inclination will assure your hell-boundness. You practice 
unresponsiveness, you'll get good at it. I confess I didn't run this down and check it, but a couple of authors that I read, speaking of uh, Pharaoh and Moses back in the book of Exodus, apparently the Bible says 10 times that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the, the directive of God to let the children of Israel go. 10 times Pharaoh hardened his heart, 10 times God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The two run absolutely together. And here there is an incapacity to believe that comes as the saving, convicting influence of the Holy Spirit comes to be withdrawn. And God, again, is under no obligation to save you on your timetable. Oh, come to Jesus now. Come to Jesus now. Not only their prophesied incapacity, but then their personal unwillingness. The last couple of verses here, gee, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. If you read that in a vacuum, you might, you might say that John is saying they got saved. Not so. We've already seen examples in the Gospel of John that that word, that word believe has to be interpreted, especially in John's Gospel, in a contextual way. You gotta look at the whole sentence. You gotta look at how it's functioning. This does not mean necessarily saving faith in the Gospel of John. It certainly doesn't mean it here. John goes to great detail to tell you what's going on with these guys. They, uh, they believe in the sense that if you said to them, you know he can raise the dead, they would say, I believe it. I believe it. You know he can cause people born blind to grow eyeballs. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Well, you know that you have to turn from your sin and trust him by faith in order that you'd be saved. Oh, I know that too. But you see, if I did that, I'd lose my synagogue seat. And I am honestly more concerned what people think of me than I am concerned that I be right with God. I can run the checklist, play Bible trivia with the best of them, but I'm not gonna surrender. I'm not gonna follow him as Lord. So they believed, they weren't saved. And what happens is, their prophesied incapacity linked up with their personal unwillingness such that they are part and parcel of the same thing. Now that's important because that's what happens. It's what happens when a sovereign God saves someone. It's what happens when one is left in his sin. One simple way to put it is, there will not be anybody in hell saying, I truly desired to turn from my sin. I truly desired that Jesus would save me, and he wouldn't. And here I am. That won't be a single person in hell. Likewise, there won't be anybody in heaven saying, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and I didn't really care about the things of God. Certainly didn't desire to repent and trust Jesus, but, well, here I am. Again, their incapacity and unwillingness are part and parcel of the same thing. And in combination, they have blind eyes, hard hearts, no confession, and love of the world. Unbelief. You can go to church all your life. 
You could even go to church in March of 2022 and have a blind eyes, hard heart, no real confession, and love the world more than you love Jesus. Take caution. May that not be any of us. Roman numeral three, three, I mean, pardon me, four glorious affirmations. Apparently John now, having made it clear that Jesus has ended his public ministry up in verse 36, John grabs this speech of Jesus from some other point in Jesus' ministry. Again, John is not all that chronological sometimes and he inserts it here as an exclamation point on Jesus' public ministry. Jesus is not, oh, by the way, let me pop out publicly and say one more thing. That's not what's going on here, but this is a, a summary from the teaching of Jesus that fits here thematically in the Gospel of John. And Jesus cried out and said, Roman numeral three, four glorious affirmations. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me, the first of these four glorious affirmations, letter A, whoever believes, whoever truly believes, will know God. There's no other way. We live in a culture, you and I, that is full of idolatry. Not as much idols made by hands, but we are surrounded by idols made by the mind. Imaginary versions of God who, are, who, who collectively are not the God who exists. We have pop culture God and sports God and political God and all kinds of gods that aren't God. And they are approachable in all kinds of open-ended terms. The God who is can be known and that is the best news ever delivered to a fallen world but he can only be known in the person of Jesus Christ. If you think you and had a man tell me once, well, me, me and God, we kind of have an arrangement. And I said, yeah, here's how it goes. You reject Christ and he sentences you to hell. That's the arrangement. And I can't understand for the life of me why you're happy with that. You come to know God by knowing Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever believes will know God. Let her be whoever truly believes will pass from darkness to light. We are born citizens of the kingdom of darkness, but we have the opportunity to be eternally forgiven, to understand quite a bit more about this world and this life that we're living, to receive all that God has given and all that God has said, and to walk in light of it. Third affirmation, God's word will be the basis of eternal judgment. God's word will be the basis of eternal judgment. The living word, Jesus, the written word, the word of God. 
Somehow we imagine some great cosmic scale and on one side our good deeds are stacked and on the other side our bad deeds are stacked and if just somehow our good deeds can outweigh our bad. But that's not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches succinctly in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. We need Jesus, but we have him. He has gone to the cross. He has borne the sin debt. He's risen from the grave to prove that it was all true. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and one day he's coming again to make it all right. <clears throat> and he's given us all we need if we will but turn from our sin and trust him by faith. Now there's an implication, a false implication that is sometimes derived from some of the words in this verse. Some seize on this in verse 48, the one who rejects me, as if to say that it is, I'm gonna be careful with this, that it is only the rejection of Christ that sends people to hell. As though no other sin matters, only the rejection of Christ will send you to hell. Now it's true that all outside of Christ are justly condemned to hell, but they're not condemned simply because they reject Christ, although that's a horrible thing to do. It's a, it's a, it's a sloppy thing I've heard said too often. The first, the first um, fallacy with that is an easy logical fallacy. Let me point it out. If the only thing that condemns people to hell in 2022 is the willful rejection of the gospel of Christ, then for heaven's sakes, we've got to stop sharing the gospel, right? I mean, if they're okay until they reject it, why in the world would we share it, right? For heaven's sakes, get the missionaries home. All they're doing is participating in the condemnation of everyone who rejects the gospel. What a, what a foolish and silly viewpoint. People, don't, people who reject Christ go to hell. But it is not merely the rejection of Christ that results in a sentence of condemnation. Not only is it a fallacy logically, it's a falsehood biblically. Let me show you some verses. I've got them there on your notes. Colossians chapter three, verses five and six. Colossians three, five and six. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Ephesians five, verses five and six, essentially the same truth. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetousness, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, what things? Their sin. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. People who've never heard of Jesus are still justly condemned by the standard established by the word of God, even if they never encounter the Christian gospel. They are justly condemned. Romans 1 has a whole paragraph that deals with this very subject. And you say to me, Pastor Russell, if I believe that, 
then it would be a thing of desperation for me to see to it that people hear the gospel since that is their only hope of life. And if you were to say that to me, I would say, welcome to New Testament Christianity. You may be finally getting it. The impetus of our ambassadorial duty that we would passionately share the gospel with dying humanity with which we are surrounded. Because letter D, God's word will be the basis of eternal life. His commandment is eternal life. Come to Jesus. And if you've never come to Jesus, but you're banking on later, May you see the massive twofold presumption. You are assuming that there is a later, and you are assuming the later capacity to repent, which you may or may not have. I wouldn't risk eternity on later. If you have come to faith in Christ, share his message, follow him closely, and do today what faithfulness requires of you.